about a new attitude we're still in the pandemic uh we're still pretty convinced that black lives matter uh we still think that you need to vote um i hope you voted uh maybe they're still counting your vote we don't know we're, we think there are a lot of things going on that we think but we think public health matters and that's an important thing and if you're trying to figure out exactly what it is you've stumbled onto this is critical thinking for everyone we're on wfmp lp that's 106.5 fm it's uh, forward radio it's in louisville kentucky social justice radio we're by the people for the people and we are out of the hayburn building in downtown louisville and uh, you can find old shows on soundcloud you can we are happy to have you and uh, i my name is patty payette she is patty payette i am i can confirm co-host of this show for three years my god i know seems like an eternity what? And you are? Oh, yeah. And I'm Brian Barnes. And uh, I've also been here for an eternity. Eternity smack. Eternity. Eternity. It is radio, so you didn't get to see the smack. And yeah. we hope it carried over. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. here we are today. Here we are. And we have a special guest coming back to we join do. us. We do. It goes back to our public health interests. Yeah. And we don't, we very rarely have someone come back a second time. So. They usually won't. <laughs> So this is really amazing. This is pretty awesome. So welcome back, Dr. Scott LaJoy. We're happy to have you. I am thrilled to be here. Awesome. Well, listeners, in case you missed it, back in March, we had Scott join us. And again, the pandemic was still in infancy. Well, in infancy in our community, right back in March. Um, And now it's more what? uh, So early teen i don't know <laughs> i'm not sure it might says. be the it might be the terrible twos mm. i don't know anyway so scott is a associate professor here at L in the health promotion behavior sciences in the school of um public health and sciences and scott yeah we're 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 thrilled to have you scott is also a longtime colleague and friend of brian and mine yeah uh, just adds another bonus to have you, Scott. Yeah, I don't know if he'll claim this, but that's yeah, that's what we're saying. So. Yeah, we're well, that's our story. Yeah. Oh, it's a feather in my cap to have you two as friends. I tell you. Oh, <laughs> good answer. Kind, super kind. Good answer. Scott, what's your impression of what's happening from a, just from your point of view as a like health professional and watcher and I presume you actually are interested in this stuff too, right? Because you devoted your life to it. What, yeah. What yeah. is going on here? <laughs> well, I, I first, I, you know, I want to talk about really locally. So um, to our listeners who are part of the University of Louisville campus environment, I think we're doing a, a pretty decent job on campus. As I walk around, I see most people are wearing masks. There are some social distancing going on. The school, the classroom layouts are appropriate to the for the most part. Um, professors are reminding their students to put their masks on when appropriate. And, you know, for the most part, I think we as a college community have um, adapted pretty well to the these tremendous changes that have occurred over the last, what is it, six, seven months? Seven months, yeah. 
Or is it even eight months? Yeah, seven months. Wow. So, so that's your assessment of the of the college. Pretty, pretty bullish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then as you sort of move out from, you know, Floyd Street and into the broader Louisville community, um, you know, we've had a lot of kind of really interesting things happening in the city, even from the the protests for racial justice to um, both Republicans and Democrats coming out to support their candidate. Mm -hmm. Um, And you see, you know, I I think that with the with the protests, we see a lot more people wearing masks, um, Mm -hmm. which is really commendable. Some of the political rallies, you're probably maybe less so, but um, you know, if you consider the fact that these protests have gone on for as long as they have, um, almost as long as the pandemic itself, the fact that the, our case count in Louisville is pretty low speaks to you know the willingness of the protesters to take some basic precautions. Okay, so when you say the case count is low in Louisville, like give us some context for that assessment. Because I don't know if I would have said that. Yeah, I okay. wouldn't have said that. So get help us. Help help us. We are lay people. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So we are, you know, what is our, com- our community rate? Let's see. Is, is creeping up. We're above 5%, right? Okay. So, you know, it's more than one in 20 people are currently infected with COVID. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that and and it does continue to creep up. So that does put us in the red zone, um, according to CDC. Right. And, and that's unfortunate. But if we look at our neighboring states like Indiana, Ohio and Tennessee, we're probably a third of the cases that, that you see there. Um, and their case rate is higher than ours and rising more rapidly. Now, and, and I say, I say that it's impressive that we've been able to keep our case rate so low, simply because look at we've had people in the streets almost every single day, yeah, for months on end, right? right? And right. lots of people getting, you know in in conjunct are close to each other and that you know, that's, a, fact, that's a good point so um is it is it an absolute value though i mean when you say high or low i mean you're uh, sort of catching this in terms of other states nearby or whatever or the I rest mean, of the state like or I the mean, size that, of the city like what are you yeah, we, I, i'm talking about rates um okay. so you know, it'd be the like the number of cases per 100,000. Okay. It's a way that we standardize, you know, case counts. Got it. And it allows us to compare different states or countries for that matter. What do you think about the level of knowledge? I mean, just I was just thinking that the way that we talked about this last time was way more remedial and we spent way more time on that last point that we that you just laid out there. Mm-hmm. And I think right now there's a certain assumption that people kind of know some of this stuff. Do you have a public health angle on that? I mean, are people picking this up or is this difficult? 
or are there other obvious pitfalls? I mean, what, what do you think about the learning curve on all this? Well, I, I you know, I think most most people now know what an epidemiologist is. They, <laughs> they pronounce can't spell it. Sure. Um, I have a hard time spelling epidemiology, um, but. You know, we have an idea that an epidemiologist is someone who studies disease spread in the community and looks for ways to prevent it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're familiar, we're more familiar with terms like vaccination and herd immunity. Yeah. Um, yeah. We understand what social distancing is. Yeah. We understand a little bit about, you know, how a virus could spread. Right. Um, I think the ma- most people in the community are well aware of what's going on, whether they choose to accept it or have higher priorities for something else. Right. Um, so um, that's so interesting. Um, it seems like everybody in the last seven months has had to become aware of all these concepts or, you know, and whether, like you said, whether or not they choose to pay attention to it or not, they become aware of it. And my, I guess my, I want to zoom out here if it's okay with you and ask you about seven months in how, what, what do you think is going to happen in the next seven months? So like what's, so, so I guess actually, let, let me let me say this. Back in March, when you were here, one of the things that you said was you thought it would die down a bit in the summer, and you thought it would come back stronger in the fall, which it has. So you were right about that. And one of the things that you said that you thought was going to happen in the fall is that we would have a bit, kind of better handle on things like rapid testing and things like. So you were right on that. So I'm just kind of saying at that sort of big picture level, I'm curious, what do you think is going to happen in the next six to seven months? So between now and what would that be, May of next year? Mm-hmm. Well, what help, walk us through what you think. Um, so if I had a crystal ball and I was trying to make predictions, I think what would what I would predict is um, we're going to see cases rise significantly in the next month or two. Oh. We're going to see a, a, a spike in cases that that is unparalleled to anything we've seen before. Um, with the corresponding, there'll be an increase in deaths. Um, I think that our governor is going to implement much stronger restrictions. I imagine that um, schools public schools will probably be NTI fully before Thanksgiving. Um, I think U of L will will go ahead and stay in person to the extent that they are through Thanksgiving, but then move on um, online afterwards. I I think that there's going to be a lot of resistance and fatigue associated with um, the non-pharmaceutical interventions that we have, such as wearing masks. Um, it's going to be fatigue. There's already fatigue. More, even, more, <laughs> even more fatigue. Uh-huh. Even more fatigue. Yeah, especially as the governor um, implements 
different changes, you know, starts requiring masks, does a statewide mandate. Oh, okay. Um, now, depending on how the election turns out, if if Joe Biden gets elected, he has suggested or hinted at a national mandate, which would, would be a positive effect, I think, that would, you know, have some pushback, but more and more people will continue to, or will start wearing masks more consistently. Okay. Um, but I do think that we are getting better at treatment. Um, we have a better understanding of how the virus works. You'll notice that while cases are rising, the actual um, mortality rate or death rate has flattened out a little bit, not quite as steep as the increase in new cases. Now that could be a function of, you know, time lag between reporting, but I I think it's it's more um, a, a marker of the fact that we understand a little bit better how to care for people. Now the caveat to that is, over the summer months we had the resources to care for people. We had the ICU beds, but as case counts go up. We'll, we'll exceed our capacity to put people in ICUs or on ventilators. You're already seeing that in El Paso, Texas, for instance, where they are, I think I heard 140% at, at capacity or above capacity. Um, so they're having to set up temporary tents, hospitals wow. outside of the okay. hospital. Um, and they're even, at this point, I've heard that they've set up some temporary morgues. Which wow. Is you know, reminiscent of what we saw in New York City uh, so back in March. Are you predicting this just in 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 the country in general? Yes. You're saying right trends, right? Trends. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I think that um, Kentucky will experience a similar or you know perhaps not as steep, but a similar increase in cases and wow. and deaths. So I guess my question to you now, we sort of zoomed out, but now I kind of want to zoom in. As you are thinking about your own behavior or the choices or decisions of your family and you're thinking about those coming months, it, what will you do, if anything, differently, Scott, that you do right now? Yeah, you know, Patty, that's such a hard, hard question to ask. Um, in fact, just before we jumped on this call, I had a um, an email from my kid's school yeah. in which they reported another case of COVID. No. Um, and it's, it's I think, the third or fourth additional case that we've seen recently uh, in the last week or two. Is that the school, you mean? Yeah, at my kid's school. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. And so um, the boy's mother and I are starting to talk about, do we pull them out of school now? Or at what point do we make the decision to switch to online 100%? Wow. Now, we're balancing the risk of catching COVID um, with, the with the obstacles that my kids will face by learning online 100%. Right. And it's, yeah. at this point, it's not a matter so much about socialization because going to school in these situations and this these days is not really about socialization. It's right. about FaceTime with the teacher and maybe a peer or two. But it's the ability to learn online 
um, is so difficult for kids that are unprepared to online learning. Um, whether it's lapses in attention or competing interests like right. video games or, you or know, back, back channel chatting with their buddies. Right, yeah. Uh, so it is a really big trade-off that I think we as parents are going to think about our kids individually, not as a not as a pair. So, for example, our older son is a junior in, in high school, and you know this is an important year for college admissions. And he also has more difficulty studying in an online environment than my younger son, who's a freshman. Okay. Right? So, we may end up putting bringing um, the youngest one home and leaving the oldest one to go to school a couple of days a week, just okay. for that FaceTime with teachers. Um, right. But it's really about thinking objectively about the costs and benefits associated with the different alternatives, leaving the kid in school versus taking him out. Okay, um, so so is that basically what you do with any, any of those other decisions? You're just trying to analyze the... Yeah, yeah, so... We have, my wife has a pretty big family here in town. And so we've been talking about Thanksgiving. And, you know, if we were all to attend Thanksgiving, our our number of people sitting around the table would be 12 or 13. You know, it would exceed the, um, what the governor's calling a small group. Right. Um, and so I'm trying to sort of and Thanksgiving's my favorite holiday. It's a time of year when I really love all of us to get together, but we may just not be able to do it. We may have to do, you know, two or three smaller Thanksgivings spread out over a week. Oh, interesting. Hmm. So so I'd I'd like to just pause for a moment because so many people are so many, many people are trying to think about Thanksgiving and what to do. And I, I'd like to talk a little bit about how Brian, you and I are thinking about it, because I think that would help other people think about it. And so Scott, it sounds like what you're saying is one of the things your family is doing is thinking about gathering, but in much smaller numbers, like what, mm -hmm. like, like what, four, five, four what? to six, yeah. four to six. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and um, so that's, and then we would probably do it during, you know, the middle of the day as opposed to the evening. So possibly we can eat outside. Oh, okay. Yeah, because Louisville, often Thanksgiving's mild, right? And so, okay, so that's really interesting. So I, my family talked about it, and I have a family that when everyone is together, it's probably 20, 20 adults or 16, 18 adults, and then a six kids or six or eight kids. So it's yeah, pretty good size. Mm -hmm. And so we basically established that the the other than like my parents and my siblings and I and our families, like there wasn't going to be any extended family, right? So we already agreed like, okay, no extended family, but what about our family? Like meaning my parents and my siblings, you know? So we had a talk with my parents about it. And in my parents, at one point it was like, we came up with different scenarios. Like, well, maybe it is an outdoor thing, but we're at separate tables, mm -hmm. right? We're at separate tables and everybody brings dishes. And I suggested we could prep dishes separately. 
like here's the dish for my parents that's for two people like that's the potatoes and this is right so they're not sharing we're not sharing dishes we're just separating everything into portions right mm-hmm. and then so we talked about it yeah da, 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 and we we really and then my parents were like I think they felt you know they're in their 80s and they were like yeah we're not sure right we're not sure so we so we kind of like just paused it all because we thought you know if if people feel different ways about the risk it's not going to be fun to get together no mm-hmm. right and nobody sure. wants anyone to feel uncomfortable about the risk sure. right sure. and so so we're kind of it sounds like we hadn't mm-hmm. really landed on anything but we we're, I think it's. A, I think we're struggling a little bit. I think we're struggling, and the and the issue is my elder is my elderly parents. That's mm-hmm. that's that's the thing. It's important. So now, what about you, Brian? What what's? What oh, my you? Thanksgiving is a dysfunctional, fragmented mess. Regardless, I mean, there's no um, the planning that we're doing here is. Um, no one's even started talking about it yet. That's how we do it, right? Nobody's even brought it up. Um, I think the assumption is probably that we're going to do something at a restaurant, which is what we've done for about the last 10 years, maybe not 10 years, definitely since I've been divorced. So at least half that it's been restaurants before that. Sometimes it was restaurants. Sometimes we do something at somebody's house. I have one aunt who's fantastic about hosting Thanksgiving, but there used to be a larger family like you guys were talking about and that through geez infighting and jealousy and just everybody's <laughs> a jerk and all this stuff that's fragmented over the years okay um, and so yeah. so you know it's really just it would be smaller anyway. we wouldn't have more probably more than six or seven people although sometimes my aunt comes we could probably get up to 10 if we really worked on it but i doubt seriously that we're gonna my i've been engaging in all these high risk behaviors because my parents can't quite figure out that restaurants are dangerous places. Wait, your parents right? are going to restaurants? Oh my God, my parents, what? my parents, they might as well live in restaurants. It's ridiculous. Oh, well, we've oh. always, you see, we've always done that. We've always been an eating out family. Mm-hmm. And, oh. and so they've had a difficult time. They, they, they eat at home some, but they don't like it. They don't like the mess. They don't like the prep. They don't like wow, the that's a pretty the good risk for their age. I tell them every day. I'm like, and what are you doing? Right? And they go to the restaurants and they take the mask off while they're eating. They're just like, well, it'll be fine, you know, just while I'm eating. And I'm like, well, no, what you got to do? Because I go, I go with them. As I mentioned, I'll go with them. I'll be like, well, maybe we can sit on the patio. Oh, uh, well, I don't know. Anyway, sometimes I get them on the patio, sometimes not. But then it's like, look, guys, we do this. We do. And then you put your mask on. And we back put on. our mask back on. Have I put my gun? They're like, nope. We'll just get to it when we're uh, done. Well, you know what? Oh man, you know it's what? ridiculous. I'm so glad for all these COVID tests because these people are freaking me out. <laughs> right? It is just. But anyway, my guess is that somebody's gonna say two two days before Thanksgiving, hey, where are we gonna eat Thanksgiving? And I'm gonna be put in the in the delightful position of saying, it's a little risky. I don't know if we should do that for this meal uh-uh. this year. You you haven't had that conversation yet. Nobody's even brought it up. Okay. So anyway, that's what's going on with me because we are a big dysfunctional mess. Wow. Well, okay. So this is for everyone, frankly. I recommend (laughs) work on it in your be be dysfunctional family. You know, I I tell you, if if there's ever Thanksgiving where not getting together with family is acceptable, I think in these political times, it might be a good choice. (laughs) Yeah. When Brian was talking and Scott, when you were talking, it made me think of something. And I want to ask you guys this question. It's about risk. And I know that's one of your areas of expertise, Scott. 
So I'm pretty good at taking them. I don't know. So, oh, well, you know, it's interesting. (laughs) It's very interesting, Brian, because so here, here's my thing, guys. Everybody has had to make decisions over the last seven months about where their appetite for risk is, right? Mm -hmm. Which doesn't necessarily mean it's the same as the people you live with or you're married to or your parents or your neighbors or whatever, right? We're all realizing, and I may speak for myself, that my sense of risk and choice is very different from uh, some other people. Mm -hmm. I know. Mm -hmm. So now... Now I think of your parents, Larry and Mary, and I think you said they were going to restaurants and they're committed to that. And, you know, and so it made me wonder, is their reason, whether it's conscious or unconscious, to make that decision and go to restaurants grounded in a sense of this is normal for us. This is a normalcy we will not give up. This is a kind of comfort level of our everyday life. We do not want to give up. Don't let the bastards win. Like, like we're going to yeah. give up maybe other things, but not oh, that. Yeah. And it got me thinking about choices and trade-offs and that what what the choices that we make in some cases are for a, a cry for normalcy that we're not willing to give up. Like I'm willing to wear a mask when I'm out in public, but I'm choosing to go to the office every day even though i don't have to because <clears throat> it, it it it's a type of normalcy for me that helps me work better it's, it helps my mental health it gets me out of the house okay so i when i realized that it was a piece of normalcy for me and i could do it in a safe way i was i was willing to take that risk do you guys see what i'm saying yep i do so, so yeah yeah I, so i'll i'll talk about that question that comment um in a couple different ways um what you're talking about mostly patty is is choosing your risks um intentionally and so for you you said going to school is a risk i'm willing to take um and i will do these actions to lower that risk as most as as best i can right and i am choosing to pay attention to other risks. So for example, I am not willing to go to Huber's farm and pick pumpkins with every other person in the world. Right. Right. Okay. So you've you've said no to that. Yes, I have. So you you've not eliminated all risks and you can't. There we, during a pandemic, there will always be risk. Um Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, and so you have identified what behavior leads to the most benefit for the amount of risk you're willing to take. Got it. Got and it. that's that sense of normalcy. Now, in Brian's situation, I might say to mom and dad, listen, if you want to go out to, to lunch or go out to Thanksgiving dinner, we will do it on the condition that you stop going out to dinner every other night of the week <laughs> right you limit you limit your going out to dinner to once a month or oh, twice a month oh right? wow i need you to come talk yeah. to him god i don't think i don't think they're, I, I think they're already done with this conversation right i mean i don't even know <laughs> well then then your then your response is you know to protect yourself sure you you go, you wear your mask, you sit six feet apart, yep. you 
you don't, you know, you don't take a piece of bread from the same bread basket that they're all taking from, yeah. right? You limit your own exposure and let them cope with their own risks because obviously they have different risk tolerance or risk benefit reward calculations. Yeah, that's definitely um, what we do. And I'm afraid that I'm not, I'm afraid that I feel a little crazy all the time because I go and I'll like show up, they'll say, ah, come, come join us for a meal. We haven't seen you in a week or 10 days or something. I'm like, well, okay. And we end up going, you know, they end up going somewhere and I convince them to sit outside. Right. But then we get out, but then I get there and then there are just these various concerns that just don't really get dealt with in every circumstance. And so I feel like the last thing I want is to, well, the last thing I want is to lose my parents. Right. right. But the, the next last thing I want is for them to be so irritated with me that they have a bad time at this. And so it's, it's difficult because I've always been relatively challenging to them, I think, in terms of, you know, <laughs> calling, them out, about, about this calling them out on some of this nonsense. So, I mean, they, they expect a certain degree of pushback, I think, but that's mm -hmm. really the line that I'm trying to, that I'm trying to walk. It's so frustrating sometimes. How about a small joke break? I mean, I don't know if anybody's into that, but I'll tell you, there's this one thing that happened when a guy went to visit the doctor he was suffering from a miserable winter cold. The doctor prescribed some antibiotics, but they didn't help. On the next visit, the doctor gave the guy a shot, but that didn't do any good either. On the last visit, the doctor tells the guy to go home and take a steaming hot bath. As soon as he gets out of the bath, he should open all the windows in his house and stand naked in the draft. But doctor, the man protests, if I do that, I'll probably get pneumonia. I know, says the doctor, but at least I know how to cure pneumonia. Yeah, I don't know if you like that one, but here's another one. Uh, this is the one about the little old lady, right? She answers a knock at the door, and there's this well-dressed young man carrying a vacuum cleaner. Good morning, says the guy. If I could take a couple of minutes of your time, I would like to demonstrate the very latest in high-powered vacuum cleaners. Go away, says the old lady. I haven't got any money. She then proceeds to slam the door. Quick as a flash, the young man wedges his foot in the door and pushes it wide open. Don't be too hasty, he says. Not until you have at least seen my demonstration. And with that, he produces and then empties a bucket of horse manure onto her hallway carpet. If this vacuum cleaner doesn't remove all traces of this horse manure from your carpet, madam, I will personally eat the remainder. The old lady steps back and says, well, let me get you a fork because they cut off my electricity this morning. That one's for everyone. Surviving the pandemic could be a challenge, but look at the kinds of things we have to look forward to when we do three senior citizens sitting on a park bench complaining about their failing bodies. I mean, again, you know, at least we made it this far, right, folks? Every morning I get up at 6 a.m., the first man explains, and I try to pee, but nothing but a trickle comes out. The second man adds, I get up at 6 a.m. too, and it feels like I've got to move my bowels, but I sit down on the toilet. Nothing happens. The third man chimes in the conversation and tells his friends, I pee and move my bowels at exactly 7 a.m. every morning. That's not bad, the first man responds. Why are you complaining? The third man admits, the problem is I usually don't wake up until 8 a.m. 
I, you know, in your situation, maybe you make concessions however you can make them. If you feel comfortable um, standing up and doing that, you know, sure. and if they get annoyed with you for wearing a mask, let them be annoyed. Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So yeah. The, the other the other thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, this this idea of risk stance. Right. So risk runs from being really risk averse or avoiding all risks to what we call risk prone, taking unnecessary risks. Right? Huh. And each of us have a different risk stance sort of depending on the situation. Some of it is our personality, our traits, maybe even our genetics. But in different contexts, we may be risk averse or risk seeking or risk prone. That's, um, a, that's a great point. If I'm if I'm thinking about my own risk taking, I might be more risk taking than if I'm thinking about my kids risk taking right. or my my parents you know, protecting my parents' health. If I'm if I'm thinking about protecting others, um, their health, I'm might be more risk averse than if I'm protecting my own health. Um, and but that's my risk perception, and that tends to be the 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 way we we function in general when it comes to health. We're more willing to undergo surgery than we are to recommend surgery for somebody else. Oh, that's it. That's very interesting. Okay. Mm. Right. And it makes sense, right? Yeah. And it makes sense that we think that way about risk in relationship to our own behavior. But I wonder how many lives. instances we have of people. I'm sure there are plenty. I'm sure, especially for parents and stuff, there are plenty of these, but I just haven't seen them. Instances where people aggressively insist that others minimize their risk. Yeah. Like I see a lot of rhetoric about your own personal risk. I see a lot of rhetoric about the societal, generally the societal thing, but not too much walking up to somebody and just insisting. Look here, you old person. What are you thinking out here? Here's a mask. Mm. Right? Like here, just do this. I'm not going to hang out with you if you don't mask. Right? I don't yeah. know how that, how that there is. Well, yeah. You know, Americans pride themselves on individuality and oh, our right to do this and don't infringe on our right for that. And oh, yeah. right, we're we're extremely protective of our rights and our autonomy is the most important right, I think, of all. Um, even if it is a misguided belief in our right to autonomy. And <laughs> um, when you're talking about a public health situation like a pandemic that right to autonomy doesn't supersede the right of someone else to health. Right. Now, people don't necessarily agree with that. Um, but think about, think back to smoking, right? And secondhand smoke exposure mm -hmm. is the is a perfect example of the right of the individual versus the right of many. Right. Yeah, but we I was an educated smoker back then. So I'm I'm on the other side of this. Sure. We couldn't we couldn't convince Brian and others to quit smoking on their own. Right. right. It didn't we didn't start seeing the rapid declines in smoking until we banned smoking indoors. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And right. we really started creating policies and regulations that prohibited people from endangering others' lives with tobacco smoke or secondhand smoke. Um, and maybe for a pandemic, obviously in America, we don't yet have the control of it like Singapore does or other countries do. Um, and so it's going to maybe have to be policy that the heavy hand of the government to sort of stop the spread of COVID so that we can get back to living our normal lives. Wow. Well, I will say, I will say that um, it, it, this particular regulation did dramatically improve the flavor of my food and beverage. That's so, good. I've, I do have a lot of uh, gratitude there for my Well, breakfast. so you particularly want to avoid COVID because one of the signs of COVID or symptoms of COVID is you lose your sense and smell. So if, you know, so if, if mom and dad happen to give you a case of COVID, you might as well start smoking again (laughs) because you're not going to taste the turkey. Well, that's, that's true. But my ability to run around the block is also impaired, which I I care more about these days because battling the cigarettes is way harder than it used to be. So Uh, what about, like, what about a vaccine? I mean, I like that the New York Times publishes, they have that little thing where they publish like how many different trials and in what stages they're mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. So that's really great. I love seeing that because it's always multiple trials, multiple stages. So it gives me hope. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard the latest I heard was that we wouldn't expect a vaccine to be sort of more widely available until more toward the middle of next year. Right. 2020. Right. It's the middle yeah. of next year. What's, so, what's your thoughts? We, we're progressing at the fastest pace of vaccine development ever. Right. Uh, we have the tools to understand the virus at, you know, microscopic levels far beyond what we've ever been able to. Um, our scientists are c- collaborating around the world and producing new insights into vaccine development. And so let's say tomorrow they came up with a vaccine that worked perfectly well in the animal model, right? Think about the steps next. So they have to prove safety. And so that's gonna require um, exposing healthy individuals to the vaccine in a slow rollout. Then they're going to have to um, roll it out to a larger, more diverse population that includes some with risk and some, you know, not with risk um, and see monitor safety there. And once the those sort of approvals have gone out, then they have to scale it up to produce the vaccine to deliver it to 330 million Americans, for right. example, right? So in order to do that, you have to have, what, 330 million vials, glass vials for the vaccine to be in. You have to have the pallets to ship it. You have to have the distribution centers all set up. You have to have the needles ready for it to go. You have to have all the supporting materials in order for that vaccine campaign to work. That type of logistics, you know, we can do. It takes time, and we're already starting to prepare by producing vials, and we're starting. Okay. We're making progress, right? But if all those things work and in March or April, they say, okay, 
come and get your vaccine. If 40% of the population says no, then that vaccine is ineffective. Really? Mm-hmm. Really? You know, what, what I've seen is if there was a, a simulation, a, um, a, a model, data model that predicted that if the vaccine is only accepted by 60% of the population, that yeah. vaccine has to be 100% effective to produce mm. her immunity, herd immunity. If 80% of the population accepts the vaccine, then the effectiveness of the vaccine can be 90%. Wow. So the more people that accept the vaccine, the less perfect the vaccine has to be. Oh, wow. So mm. what we really need to be doing between now and let's say March or April is doing a all out marketing blitz to get people to start accepting the idea of a vaccine. Oh, okay. And right now, half of the electorate wouldn't accept a vaccine that came from under the current administration. The other half of the electorate won't accept a vaccine that comes from the next administration, right? Ah. We're so politicized in this whole division of uh, the politicization of COVID that we have got to figure out a way to market the message that vaccines are safe, effective, and pro-social. Okay. So here's, so let me lay this on you. Okay. That's fascinating and a little scary. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I heard back in spring was, okay, well, they're going to have to get a vaccine eventually, and it's going to take years, right? It's going to take years because that's how long it takes to get a vaccine. And I remember thinking in my head, I don't think I've really said this to anyone else, but I remember thinking in my head, you know what? There's no way it's going to take years because with all the technology and all the motivation and money behind this, there's going to, they're going to find a way to speed it up, right? There's somebody, there's going to be, I don't think it's going to take two years, right? So that was just in my own head, like not knowing, not being you, not being a public health professional. I just thought, and maybe, maybe that was just also me just clinging to my own, like <laughs> there's no way, right? I want to think about a denial, right? Right. So, so now I, you say that to me and my, my denial or my, my inner person who's, you know, doesn't want to hear it thinks, okay, but when push comes to shove and people are told you can't send your kid to school, you can't go into uh, this or that, or you can't do these things unless you get a vaccination. I, I think when push comes to shove, many people will feel compelled to do it, even if they say now, I'm not going to do it. So that's, that's just, again, maybe I don't. No, I, I, you know, I, it, what that's, what that's doing is rising to the level of making the vaccine a mandatory vaccine, just like we have for the MMR vaccine for our kids to go to school. They've got to be right. vaccinated against, you know, pertussis and measles, mumps, rubella. Right. And yet, you look at variations across states in terms of medical exemption and philosophical exemption laws. So really conservative states let people get, you know, get out of vaccines more easily. And unless it's a, some sort of a federal mandate that says every person has to be vaccinated or, or your state's going to lose money for the highway you know, in transportation or whatever, interstate commerce, then we can't 
you can't assume that each state is going to enforce the mandate um, equally. Okay, well, that's a great point. That's a great point. But I do, th I do think that vaccine is is available. What we'll do is we'll start vaccinating the people who are most at risk. So the elderly, the frontline workers, the um, you know essential workers, and we're going to eventually we're just going to build our way out from the center, so that our laggards, the people on the fringes who, you know, are least likely to get infected, will be the last to get the vaccine. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. So. <clears throat> This was people have been saying this is unexpected. This is, um, you know, once in a hundred years, quite literally, maybe um, people talk about a pandemic situation being exceedingly uncommon. Now, I know in the last administration, there was a pandemic response team that was established. Mm -hmm. I guess that made me think that there was some concern. I know that we've had Ebola, for example, was a um, a possible candidate for this kind of global pandemic that maybe didn't quite didn't quite make it because of public health policy, I assume. Uh, you know, you if you go back to the previous administration, we had the H1N1 outbreak, swine flu. Oh, yeah, right. Right. Um, and that had the worldwide put you know had a very strong potential to be a worldwide um pandemic now yeah. we saw in fact the number of people who were infected with h1n1 was in the millions several maybe i don't know 50 million people around the world were infected with h1n1 it just didn't happen to be a deadly virus that deadly oh. so people didn't worry as much um, but it did spur the federal government to mandate that every state develop its own pandemic preparedness plan. Oh, okay. And so sure. all all 50 states have a plan, whether they're following it right now or if it's been updated, um, they do have that plan. So what is your sense of <clears throat> where we are in terms of the future. I mean, is this something we're going to continue to deal with? Maybe there are going to be others of these or something, oh. or, or can we get oh, out? It's, it is um, more and more likely that we'll be experiencing pandemics on a faster pace oh um, because of climate change and because of increased popu growing population um, and the demand for um, new foods supplies, um, the encroachment on animal habitat that we're seeing all around the world, including in the U.S., um, the, that interaction between the animal reservoir of virus and the human reservoir um, is, is getting tighter and tighter. Um, and it just you know, there's no, there's nothing saying that a pandemic has to happen every 50 years or every 100 years. We could have a second pandemic start tomorrow. Wow. Lot to handle. Wow, that um, is a lot to handle. <clears throat> Scott, that's wow, that's such a downer. 
Wow. <laughs> You're what all right. did he say? He said sorry. <laughs> <laughs> He's fine. This um, show is all about thinking authentically. So well, thank that's you. the thing, and the, you know, we need we need to get a sense of of maybe what our expectations should be, because um, you know, nobody wants to think that this is just going away, and then suddenly it's um, you know we got another one, or it's back, or whatever. So, well, uh, no, no pandemic has ever started from a fruit or vegetable. Okay. So if we could decrease our consumption of meat. I love it. Um, significantly, we're less likely to see the next pandemic. Okay. okay. Wow, Scott. That's a good, that's that's a good bit of, of advice. I love we're, that. We're running out of time, Scott. Is there another... Anything else that you might suggest to the people? I mean, in, you know, parting words of wisdom? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are entering or already in the beginning of the seasonal flu um, season. Yes, we are. Now, seasonal flu is, it's a different virus. It's influenza B. Um, right. It produces similar symptoms to what the beginning symptoms of COVID are. Uh, respiratory issues, headache, you know, fatigue. Right. Um, we in public health and medicine are recommending that everyone get a flu shot this year. Even if you've never gotten one in the past, get one this year. Okay. And the reason we're saying that is twofold. One, we don't want your symptoms to, conf if you get the flu, we don't want your symptoms to confuse you into thinking you have COVID mm -hmm. and then you go to the hospital and take up resources that should be devoted to COVID care. And then the second um, consideration is the, the flu shot will help increase your, you know, your resiliency of potentially getting, um, getting COVID if you were exposed, because if your body's flight, fighting off the flu, your immune systems are is weakened, and that makes you more susceptible uh -huh. to get the get the flu or okay. get COVID. Good and so I, rec I recommend everybody get a flu shot. Okay. Okay, I've got mine. I My, got mine. Mine's coming. I haven't got it yet, but it's it's coming. You got yours, Scott? I sure have. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> um. Well, I got I got one last question for you, Scott, because this is one that <clears throat> this is one that comes up a lot, and I just want to see what your response, if there's, if there's a public health response to it, I'm not sure. What do you say to people who say this increased, I'm sure you've heard this somewhere, this increased interest in getting everybody vaccinated is so they can shoot the little tracker into us, right? So we can all get chipped with the microscopic tracker, maybe so the government has better control over us. So really, this is just a scam. That's not you don't need this stuff. You're, they're trying to get you in line so you can get, you know, whatever control mechanism is out there. What do you what do you say to stuff like that? Anything? Well, so I would be curious to know if they're typing that response on Twitter, that conspiracy on Twitter using their cell phone. Yeah, right. right? <laughs> um, if you are worried about someone injecting a tracker into you but you're not concerned about social, you know, being tracked by every purchase, every call, every text, every, you know, step you take, mm -hmm. then you're missing the much, much bigger risk. Yeah, and we did, we just did a show on the very topic. We've got like one minute left. So Scott, I, here, I have a question, my final question. If there's one behavior change 
that you would want people to walk away from and do differently or or reinforce something that they may be doing what's the one thing you would really want everybody to do so we've been talking about we call we've called it social distancing since march right, right? and before that it's always been in the language of public health social distancing we need to change that to physical distance Got it. Right? Emphasize that we stay six feet or more apart, but we maintain our social connection. Be- people are going to be much more frightful, you know, afraid, lonely, and psychologically distressed if we don't maintain our social connections. So we're not asking you to socially distance. We're asking you to physically distant but maintain or increase your social connection through the phone, through video conferencing, through whatever mechanism you can. Write letters. Write letters to your friends and family. Yeah, my sister's been sending me awesome postcards. Regularly during the, we live five minutes apart, but she's been sending me these great fun postcards. Doesn't that make you feel good to get that in the mail? Amazing. Scott, thank you. That's great advice. Physical distancing and also also cements in the reminder about staying apart from people. So it also does the double duty of like, you know, reminding you about physically staying apart when you are around other people. So, Scott, thank you very much. We're so great to have you. Maybe we'll bring you back in every six months. Uh, yeah, we might need it. Definitely. I'm happy to be uh, be back as often as you want to have me because this is a great way to spend some time together. Thank you. Yes, it's great social time for three of us. That's right. Well, thank you for making the time. And uh, we really hope that if anybody wants to reach out to Scott LaJoy, that you'll do that. Um, You know, uh, through us, maybe. uh, They can find you through the College of Public Health also. Yeah, LaJoy at Louisville.edu. All right. Sounds great. Awesome. All right. Well, this has been real. All right. Uh, Scott, we really appreciate you making the time today. Have you even thought about donating to Forward Radio? Look, we really only need 20 bucks a day, but we do need 20 bucks a day. And I guess we don't need it from you, but we definitely need it from people like you. So you might think about just rolling on over to forwardradio.org and you can click on the donate button there and you can donate, um, you know, like we say, a minimum, we hope, of $20 a day, although anything's great. Um, that helps the all the technology run and we get the electricity and we're able to get all our licenses and that's really a big deal for a radio station so uh, we could use your help in that regard if you like this programming you can also find uh, the schedule for all the great local programs you can also find out how to get involved in programming uh, if you go over to forwardradio.org maybe you want to start your own show maybe you want to be part of our board that helps direct this stuff we could sure use your help and we really hope you've enjoyed the show today and all of our public health PSA from Dr. Scott LaJoy woman visits the doctor. Doctor, I have this problem with gas, but it doesn't really bother me too much. It never smells and it's always silent. As a matter of fact, I've farted at least 10 times since I've been here in your office. You didn't know I was farting because it doesn't smell and it's silent. Doctor says, I see. Take these pills and come back to see me next week. The next week, the lady returns. Doctor, she says, I don't know what the heck you gave me, but now my farts 
although still silent, stink terribly. Good, the doctor says. Now that we've cleaned up your sinuses, let's work on your hearing. <laughs> You know, I don't usually go in for the religious on the show. Maybe you're aware of that. But there was this anecdote that I heard about a pastor. He became enraged when he found a bill for a $250 dress in his wife's purse. How could you do this? The pastor cried. You know we're on an incredibly tight budget. I know, the woman said, but the devil himself was shopping with me. He convinced me the dress looked so good I had to buy it. The pastor consoled his wife with a hand on her shoulder. In those moments, my love, you've got to yell out loud, Get behind me, Satan! I did that, the wife explained, and he said, The dress even looks good from back here! Since we're in the right season, I'll see if you see if you like this one. A member of the Senate, I'm not going to say who, known for his hot temper, explodes one day in mid-session and begins to shout, Half of this Senate is made up of cowards and corrupt politicians! All the other senators demand that the angry member withdraw his statement or be removed for the remainder of the session. After a moment to think, the angry senator apologizes. I'm sorry, he says. What I meant to say was, half of the Senate is not made up of cowards and corrupt politicians. Now, I'll tell you what, that one's for everyone. Hey, do you know why George Washington had trouble sleeping? It's because he found it impossible to lie. making the time today because we know this stuff is difficult and we know the thinking is challenging and we know as you go through your week you're gonna have lots of questions about what's the right way to think about all this stuff and so we hope that we've been some kind of a resource for you if nothing else to give you the confidence to recognize that this stuff is for everyone even you